development, I don't think anybody really fully understands where it's headed and what, what it could mean for workplaces in terms of policies and things they have to do. Whereas I think things are a little bit clearer when it comes to the marijuana law. But isn't because, you know, like there's laws coming into place. But Hi, this is Sal Chalfi. And this is Paige McGarry. And you're actually listening to us discuss how we should start this podcast. I feel like it's sort of been done quite a bit all over the place. Yeah, but I mean, okay, okay. <laughs> is that a bad thing? It's not a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, we had a bit of a disagreement. It absolutely, it's absolutely possible, yeah. The work from home, I think, is a big thing. It's, yeah. we're, we're or let's that. say intense conversation. Yeah, it wasn't a disagreement. I think we just couldn't <laughs> come to an agreement. There's just so that? many options. Too many options. So we thought, why don't we start with everyone's favorite thing, marijuana. Marijuana in the workplace is going to be a huge issue in 2018. I think the other so that was Stuart Rudner, an employment lawyer at Rudner Law. Uh, I spoke to Stuart in April for a piece on medicinal marijuana in the workplace. I think you know, over the last year we've been talking about marijuana in the workplace quite a bit. And initially it was focused on medical marijuana, and now of course with legalization of recreational use, uh, there is this widespread concern that it's going to be you know, rampant uh, usage or employees are coming to work impaired. And uh, so I think we're going to see the case law develop, particularly with respect to the days to accommodate, and people need to develop an understanding of what needs to be accommodated and and what doesn't. And, and you know, we've been doing a lot of presentations on that, including the four types of users that you can expect to see in the workplace, some of which require accommodation, some of which don't require accommodation at all. Okay, so hold on. I'm not sure who those four users are. Right, so those four types of users are addicts, casual users, self-medicators, and that means people that use marijuana medicinally but without a prescription, and then those who have a medicinal marijuana prescription. Uh, and I think employers are really going to sort of start to need to start going to identify which one is which. The workplace is definitely changing. Yeah, definitely. And another way that uh, it's changing quite a bit recently is uh, the generations that are in the workforce at the moment. It's very scary to think that even though millennials seem like they just popped up, they have been in the workforce for a while. And even more scary is that Generation Z is fast approaching behind the millennials. Uh, so this is Amy Reich, Workopolis' Senior Manager of Human Resources. We met Amy in our previous podcast on counteroffers. Welcome back, Amy. Thanks, Paige. Thanks for having me. I think we need to be mindful of the fact that millennials have been in the workforce for a few years now. We've had an opportunity to adjust to things that millennials are really looking to gain out of work. Um, I've seen a few different reports about the time frames and ages of millennials. Um, most reports I've seen start millennials at births in 1982. I've seen some reports saying that this generation ends around 1996 to 2004. So we can kind of speculate that millennials right now are in the age range of 21 to 35. They've been in the workforce for about 10 years. We've had an opportunity to adjust to what they're looking for and, and how they want to work and things that they're looking to gain out of their employment. Okay, so that's millennials, but now there's this whole new generation entering the workforce, and that's Generation Z. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so again, a few different reports give different dates on the start and stop times of, of births for this generation, um, but most I've seen classify Generation Z as people being born in between the years of approximately 95, 96 up to 2009. So this generation is now in the age frame of 8 to 21. 
So we could already have a few Gen Z in our workforce. So I think what's important to note is millennials have been accustomed to using technology. It was either introduced to them uh, in the late elementary school days, early high school days. So this generation kind of got integrated into technology in their more formative years. What we're seeing with Generation Z is these children are growing up with technology, even as early as babies. They are already know how to use iPhones and laptops. These are skills that don't have to be trained to this generation, whereas baby boomers saw the integration of technology rolling into the workforce over a number of years. So this poses a lot of great opportunities for employers and HR professionals, but also a lot of challenges. We can assume that the needs and requirements of Generation Z will be similar to those of millennials, but they could also have a completely unique set of, of needs and things that they're looking for um, that's unique to them. So I think as an employer, we need to be proactive. We need to start looking at our internal policies um, and determining what we're currently offering our workforce in the forms of flexible work arrangements, work from home opportunities, and a lot of those other um, flexible kind of work arrangement items so that we can ensure that we are hiring and attracting and also retaining top talent. I think it's really interesting as well to think about the fact that we still have baby boomers in the workforce and once Generation Z enters the workforce more fast and furious in the next one to two years, we are about to have five generations in the workforce at the same time, all with very different needs and requirements. So I think that's something that we need to give some thought to. Oftentimes when we create policies, we try to do it in a manner that caters to everyone's needs, but we may see a shift in that moving forward whereby you have five generations with unique sets of needs and requirements and we may have to cater our policies to try to meet the needs of various groups. So Amy touches on a point here that we keep hearing and that's really that people of all generations want more flexibility. Um, off-site, on-site flexibility. Remote is a huge thing. You might remember this voice from our Counter Offers podcast. It's Jillian Singerman, who's the senior recruiter at Creative Circle. Like eight out of 10 candidates, mm -hmm. whether it's a full-time job or even you know a six to 12 plus month contract, yeah. it, it will sweeten the pot if you're offering some flex hours or work from home days. And are you, are you finding more companies are open to that? Um, slowly but surely. Yeah. The larger, more corporate companies, no, they're not jumping on this trend. But startups, mature startups, um, even some agencies, I think location is a big thing. If you're mm -hmm. a downtown agency, you're probably not going to have work from home days. If you are a great agency, but you're in an outskirt, right. um, you probably will offer some, you know, flex days. Okay. Because you want great people, um, and that's not to say that great people won't go to the outskirts, but the percentage of people that are open to non-TTC accessible mm -hmm. offices, you know, that will change. So more and more people are looking to to work from home and to have remote positions, and that's something we've actually talked about in the office here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, the challenge is 
it's not always easy for companies to, to, to offer that. There's, there's issues involved, there's logistics, there's, um, there's lots of things that you have to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's part of a bigger trend of companies and employers kind of needing to learn how to be a bit more flexible uh, and kind of roll with the punches a bit more. Um, and kind of on that topic, I recently spoke to John Wright. I'm the president and managing director of the Canadian Management Centre, which is based in Toronto. So we're actually going to hear more from John in the new year for uh, eGuide that we have coming up on hiring amazing managers. Uh, but for today's podcast, John is talking about something a little different. There's a lot of different management trends I could probably uh, provide comments on for 2018, but one of the topics that certainly uh, started in the last few years and I think is uh, right on the front edge going into 2018 is creating agile companies. So for those who aren't quite sure what that means, Paige, what is an agile company? So it's essentially one that can quickly adapt to future changes or challenges. You know, in a way, it's kind of future-proofing your company. It's also just learning to be more flexible. There's a number of different factors that are causing uh, companies to be thinking about this issue. Um, The most important one is the rapid change in the marketplace. So a lot of organizations are being faced with changes thrust upon them. Other companies are a bit more opportunistic. They're seeing opportunities that they can react to or adapt and take advantage of in the marketplace. And um, the other thing is just the labor talent shortage that is starting to come to the front in Canada. Uh, the most recent uh, census showed that there are two people retiring from the workforce in Canada with only one person poised to enter the workforce. So there's this talent shortage that's going to happen and companies are going to have to think about how they can deal with that. Uh, certainly immigration um, in certain skilled areas will help, will help, but they've got to do other things as well. So what this really means, I think, is that organizations need to think about how they can change and adapt and do so at speed. Um, a lot of organizations are now starting to think about flexible career models for their staff. Um, and in fact, some companies, according to a recent Deloitte report, show that they don't have any career models at all. More companies are relying on flexible workforces and flexible contract workers or just-in-time skill. Um, and in fact, 55% of companies expect this to continue as a trend in their business next year. So these organizations are facing change from the outside, some from within. They've got a talent shortage to deal with. So what kinds of things are they going to do about it? Well, one of the critical things is that they've got to have very effective leaders who are agile leaders who can develop and create agile teams. So what that means is that they need to focus on both the form and the flexibility of teams. They're brought together more around projects. You know, in years past, people would reorganize a company to achieve a certain project or goal. That's not done much anymore. Reorgs do happen, but now companies look at it as reorganizing teams and even networks of teams to get work done and get things done quickly. Skill areas, people need to be um, digitally savvy. They need to be comfortable working with data, which is becoming mountains of data, and analytical rigor to try and sift through all that and even use that data and the analytical skills to make decisions in real time. Part of what organizations need to adapt to is then how do you train people? So part of that is facilitating rapid learning experiences and making sure that those learning experiences are geared to the role and the tasks and ultimately the decisions that need to be made in the roles. There's one other thing that happens with these types of organizations if they're going to be successful, and that is that they have to have what's 
becoming an increasingly popular term, which is a growth mindset. So in thinking uh, what companies can do um, and develop people with good growth mindsets, some of the things they need to do is make sure that they have people who don't fear failure. Uh, certainly these are people who can learn and gain from failures. Um, some people even evolve into best practice learning, but uh, companies have to not be punitive when failure happens, but they have to make sure that people do, lane, do learn and get um, some gain from it. There are people who look for development and growth opportunities uh, for others in their teams as they're looking to, to build these flexible teams. And a, a recent report from the World Economic Forum showed that there's um, uh, top five skills um, that they are ranking as the ones that are going to change over time. It was interesting to see that the top four of those top five all remained in the top five. So complex problem solving, uh, coordinating with others, people management, and critical thinking all were constant between their forecast of what's happening in 2015 and what will be happening in 2020. The new changes, though, were that critical thinking went to number two in that top five, and creativity went to number three. So people's ability to be um, skillful with complex problem solving, critical thinking, creativity, people management, and coordinating with others, those are the skills that are the evolving skills as we approach towards 2020, and those are the skill sets that organizations should be prioritizing in helping them build um, agile leaders who can develop agile teams and have that roll up into agile organizations. So skills training is definitely something that all small business owners should be focusing on, but specifically, people tend to overlook soft skills. Right, Paige? Absolutely. Do you think we need to define soft skills, or is that...? I think we do. Okay. Yeah. Um, so soft skills are kind of the intangible skills that are harder to kind of list on your resume, um, but are super, super important in the workforce. You know, something like empathy or... Or communication. Yeah, and that kind of plays into the next uh, forecast. I think 2018 is going to be a big conversation year. This is Lisa Taylor. I'm the president of Challenge Factory and the Center for Career Innovation. Lisa also recently wrote a book called Retain and Gain, Career Management for Small Business, and that's something that we featured on the blog earlier this year. The whole topic of how work is changing and the world of work is changing really starts to take shape and take hold and not just be a discussion, but we actually start to see some significant changes. I think that the conversation in Canada around the and in Ontario around the um, minimum wage discussion and having that be implemented, uh, especially through the small and medium-sized business sector, will cause uh, business owners, business leaders, and employees to really think about the value of work and to have more conversations where the relationship between the employer and the employee get attention that in the past may not have been a, a priority area. We see that business owners and employees are shifting in the way that they relate to each other, but they're not necessarily talking to each other about those shifts. They're just happening simultaneously. And I think career conversations between employees, whether they're full-time staff, part-time staff, contracted labor, part of the freelance economy, I think the conversations between the people who are working inside of the organization 
and the leaders of the organization to be focused on how um, there's an alignment or what's of interest in the future goals and desires of the employee and aligning that with the future goals and desires of the organization, I think those conversations are going to really come to the front. And we're going to need new skills in how we navigate and speak to each other about the relationships that we have as employers and employees going forward into the future of work. I think the first step in employers and employees to gain the skills that they need in order to have these new kinds of conversations and new kinds of relationships really comes first from a recognition that the relationship has shifted. So in our work, we track five drivers that are shaping how the world of work is changing now and in the future, and career ownership is the second of the five drivers, that relationship between employer and employee. And at the moment, there's a lot of discussion that takes place around work-life balance, around stress in the workplace, around finding meaning and passion in the work that you do, and then on the employer side, on balancing, managing remote workers, managing more freelance and contract workers, there's, there's a, a, a general awareness that the relationship is changing, but nobody has necessarily put their thumb on it and said, at the crux of all of these changes in the relationship is actually good, solid career conversations that help guide both the individual on how to navigate and balance all of the different aspects of their life, including work, and on the employer side, how to best navigate and manage with a very changing, shifting workforce. So there are ways to be able to gain those kinds of skills, but the very first step before you can even gain the skills is to recognize that paying attention to those career conversations, recognizing that that relationship has changed is the first step of knowing that you need to even take a look at the skills that you have and update the tools that you use. In closing, I think the final thought that I would leave in terms of predicting for the future is the only way that the future actually starts to take shape and make sense is if we continue to talk, if we continue to have dialogue, if we all share each of our different perspectives as the world shifts around us. And it's through the combination of those conversations that the shape of the future actually takes hold and we can recognize what pace at how quickly will change actually be upon us? What are we seeing and learning from each other? And I mentioned the importance of these conversations because too often we just rely on headlines that may fly past us or a particular data point that strikes us and becomes interesting we build our perspective around that one piece of information. Because there are five drivers that are changing the way the world of work is changing, and it's infecting everything that we take a look at and do in terms of our work and life, we need to keep talking with each other and learn what, what are you seeing and how are you experiencing work and what are you integrating in terms of new practices that I hadn't thought of? How are you using technology? It's only through these conversations that we actually get the full picture. So that full picture uh, includes a lot of conversations that people weren't always comfortable having in the past. Yeah, definitely some pretty intense conversations are starting to happen, as you've seen on the news. Uh, we're going back to Stuart to talk about harassment in the workplace. Harassment in the workplace, you know, that's been a focus for several years and culminating with Bill 132 last year. Uh, but now, ever since uh, the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke and all of the, you know, the Me Too movement, 
we're seeing more and more people coming forward with complaints and employers need to address them. I think people are are now sort of feeling the way through or around the subject. You know, I think what's going to change is that there will be more clearer guidelines as to what employers should do when they're faced with complaints of harassment. Since Bill 132 came into force, which is September 2016, we saw an uptake in the number of harassment complaints. But harassment could be, you know, anything, not necessarily sexual harassment. It could right. just be, you know, a manager who is uh, abusive. Uh, or bullying and that kind of thing, which you know, I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of that, um, but just over the last month or so, since Harvey Weinstein's scandal broke, we're seeing a lot more allegations of sexual harassment and, and historical sexual harassment, or maybe either it's been going on for years or it took place many years ago. And now people are coming forward. So we're, we're seeing a lot more of those scenarios. Well, that's definitely a huge issue, and we're going to be exploring that much more in the year ahead, as well as this next forecast, and that's all about technology and more specifically automation. The long-term trend for the labor markets is a move towards automation. This is futurist Richard Warzel. Um, Automation is going to displace a lot of people from jobs, um, and it's going to continue to create a sense of peril which is going to mean that, that people who are employed, many people, not all people, but many people who are employed, won't feel that they have much in the way of standing in order to renegotiate their wages or to ask for more money. Mm-hmm. Now, automation is a, an issue that is getting a, lot, getting a lot of play right now, and there are two fundamental schools, and I think we may have talked about this before. We did, actually. Uh, for more, you can check out our full podcast on Richard's workplace predictions from the fall. You've got, on the one hand, you have the techno-weenies, and on the other hand, you have the neo-Luddites. The, um, the neo-Luddites, the Luddites originally come from, I think, the 17th century when uh, automated weaving started to come in and displace um, home cottage weaving. And Ned Ludd is a potentially mythical character from the UK who led people to smash the automated looms because they said they would displace people. Mm-hmm. And indeed, they did. Um, but what also happened, and this is traditional with the history of, of automation, is that new jobs were created in part because as the cost of weaving came down or as the cost of mass-produced goods came down through automation, People effectively got an increase in the standard of living. Um, so if something used to cost, pick a number, $50, and now it costs $25, you've got $25 left in your jeans to buy something else. So that's an, an effectively an increase in the standard of living. And that made, meant the demand for other goods goes up. And that led to other uh, kinds of jobs appearing. And that has been the tradition uh, for hundreds of years that the technology does destroy jobs, but it also creates new ones because it creates an increase in the standard of living for most people. Now, the, uh, that's the techno-weenie uh, point of view, that, that new jobs are, go- are going to appear and people will be able to retrain and, and uh, move into a different, uh, a different field. The neo-Luddites say, yes, that's true, but the problem is that automation is decimating so many jobs that there isn't, it, aren't going to be enough jobs to go around. Now, I actually come down in, in between. Um, the, it is true that automation is decimating jobs, 
Um, and it is also true that new jobs are being created. There are two things that are different this time. The first one is the speed with which these things are happening. The jobs are being uh, destroyed uh, very quickly and far faster than people have the ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. So somebody, for example, used to be a major tire factory in Gulf, Ontario, now Cambridge, and uh, it was closed because it was the least productive plant in the company's portfolio around the world. Um, so a for factory foreman who had worked there for 30 years and was 50 years old is not going to go off and become a website designer. He doesn't have the background or the skills. Um, so the skill set is different, and the speed with which change is happening is different. So that's, that means that people are going to be put out of work by automation and may not have good alternatives, even if there are new, better jobs becoming available. So would you call yourself a techno-weenie, Paige? Or are you more on the side of the Luddites? I, I think I'm somewhere in between, like Richard, although sometimes I wish I was more of a Luddite. Sometimes really? it gets, I, I find as every year goes by, I'm more and more overwhelmed by it all. I try to stay up to date with techno, but I feel like, as you're right, as you get older, it just gets harder and harder. It's freaking kids. <laughs> I just get off my lawn already. You would not believe how many times Sal says that. I say it often. I don't even have a lawn. That's the funny part. <laughs> Um, well, there's a lot to take in there. Obviously, it's a huge issue, um, but I think we're still early, early stages, and it's, you don't have to panic, basically, is I think what Richard's saying here. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about that, again, he the podcast that we did with Richard is really fascinating, and he goes a bit more into detail about what employers and employees can do uh, to prepare themselves for this upcoming uh, automation. The robot invasion. Yes. <laughs> also, Richard's a very fascinating guy, so definitely look him up. Well, that's it. That's it. We did it. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll see you in 2018. Safer Work is produced by me, Sal Chalfi, Paige McGarry, Andrea Greck, and Sonia Matheson. Theme music by the band Code Pie.